Yeah, so I, I think um, she's young. I think she's like 26 as the executive director of that Dude uh, Ranch Association, 27 maybe. And she was just fear, uh, like worried about being put on the spot and sounding incompetent. I think. <laughs> <laughs> she clearly she doesn't know. Okay, yeah. Are, are we getting back in? Okay. Clearly, she doesn't know who, what the host she's dealing yeah, with. Yeah. <laughs> the low bar. Yeah. <laughs> okay, season two, episode two. I have been trying to get Nick DeCastro of LandTrust.com in here for a year now. Uh, we're really excited about season two. We're on YouTube now, so this is a full recording video on youtube check it out if that's how you stream and uh, how you get your media and, and entertainment uh, i am very entertaining you don't need to know anything more than that so <laughs> feel free to access our youtube and uh season two episode two um that's a first that we're doing the youtube thing and i'm waving at you right now and, and another first is our guest brought in his concealed carry to the <laughs> office <laughs> and uh, first that we know of yeah, yeah that we know of <laughs> And uh, just want to thank all of our listeners. Season one was awesome feedback, awesome amount of downloads, uh, shares. Keep it up. Keep reaching out to us. Um, I want to thank our listener in Boston at Boston College. I'm not sure if she's a student or a professor, but uh, she said we sound like her uncles in North Dakota sitting around drinking coffee. So that's a good compliment. Appreciate that. And thanks to Dan in Oregon who listened to the episode... Uh, property rights with the Johnson brothers, and he reminded me of the Fourth Amendment that uh, I think anyone listening should Google the Fourth Amendment right now and remind themselves of that right. It might not be on Google anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe DuckDuckGo, the Fourth Amendment. <laughs> right, and I hope we don't get deplatformed because I brought up the Fourth Amendment and, and we're going to get removed. Not to mention concealed carry. That's yeah, right. and concealed carry. Hey, as a Bozeman guy coming to Billings, I don't know, you know, you guys are kind of dodgy over here. <laughs> Can't be too safe. <laughs> well, I, I would assume... Uh, Stitcher, our distributor, is, is uh, they're hosting this on AWS. So I don't want Amazon to dethrone us or uh, deplatform us and Apple to censor us. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but let's get in. Let's get in. Since we are apolitical, uh, we're here about investment analysis and land values in the more specifically in the Northern Great Plains, but uh, across the United States in general. Season two, we're going to try to bring in some international guests. Uh, I have one in mind from Australia, a consultant heavy into station management, managing large cattle and sheep stations. But uh, Andy, what are your thoughts on season one and season two? I thought season one was great. Uh, my first podcasting experience just kind of dove in, and it was it was amazing. The response has been fabulous, and it's a lot of fun, and it's amazing how much uh, expertise we have at our fingertips in this state. It's just been a blast. Well, with that, um, our guest, Nick DeCastro of LandTrust, LandTrust.com, he has decided he's going to take it upon himself to accomplish one of the most difficult tasks in the United States, which is getting farmers and ranchers to sign up on a tech platform to allow John Q. Public to hunt <laughs> on their private property. And uh, I just wanted to lead by saying, Nick, I don't think that'll ever work. Yeah, we've heard that before. Um, <laughs> this actually, I've done a few podcasts, but this is the first one I've done in person. And I, it's different in a better way. Um, doing it via Zoom or whatever. I mean, mm -hmm. it's fine and you got to do what you got to do sometimes, but it's much better to be sitting here looking at folks and talking to people. It seems more natural. 
Despite yeah. despite the appearance of your hosts. You forgot your mask. That's right. Yeah, I did. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, that's what we're building today. And um, I launched the company two Octobers ago. And there was a lot of that sentiment from certain aspects of the uh, both the landowner and sportsman community. And, hey, look, if people aren't telling you it's not going to work, it's probably not a good idea. Um, if you have unanimous consent that it's a good idea... I don't know. Either it's already been done or it's not that good of an idea. There always needs to be a little bit of pushback, I think. Um, but it has been working. People have been doing it. We're in 37 or so states now in the for, in our first you know full year of operations or so. Um, 300 plus thousand acres of land being listed by the landowners. Uh, a lot of them are producers or farmers and ranchers. We do have you know just rural landowners as well that list with us. Um, and out of the hundreds and hundreds of trips that have been booked in the first year, 95, 96% five-star ratings from landowners to sportsmen on those. So, you mm. know, that's, uh, I think that's pretty telling. And, um, you know, we're, we're really looking forward to growth and growing not only uh, from our footprint perspective, but also from the types of revenue streams that we're going to be introducing to landowners as well. Well, I, I would... I want to ask you some questions here, and I don't no want to sound sound like a sales pitch. Um, but my experience with hunters and hunting in our ranch is signed up for public access via the block management program of Fish, Wildlife, and Parks. And the big fear from my my family and my neighbors is that our understanding and what we grew up with with uh, hunters is that they're driving around in a 1982 Chevy that probably has one tire about to be cut and go flat and get stuck on your place. They're leaving gates open. They're shooting at everything like it's Vietnam out there. <laughs> and they're drinking bush light and throwing out the cans. Um, what, what has been, when you approach landowners, has that been some of the feedback and fear you get? That's a good question. So uh, having since the inception and really starting to actually work on this business, I've spoken to... Uh, thousands of landowners probably and me and you know uh, my team and we have heard all sorts of things and uh, you know we heard a lot of we used to allow hunting but and uh, you know as a as a founder it's my job to figure out and deconstruct like why is this thing not working uh, and that's what we do building businesses hey something's broken there's a market here something's broken let's try to fix it make it better and like facilitate a market um and really it came down to like, yeah, okay. So you nailed like 16 of those things when that statement, like, hey, they're going to shoot a cow. They're going to, you know, leave a fence open. They're going to rut out something. They're going to X, Y, and Z. Um, and those aren't unfounded uh, concerns. The reason why they're stated is because at some point in time they have happened. And when I really looked at this, it, my perspective is all those things tie to kind of one thing, which is, anonymity. So, you know, as a landowner, you have someone drive down your driveway to knock on your door. You don't know who they are. Four um, o'clock in the morning on yeah, opening day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you don't know who these people are. They, hey, odds are they're great people, right? By and large. And many of these folks who had allowed hunting had allowed hunting for a long time because most of these people are good folks and they respect the land and they respect the opportunity. All it takes is one guy or gal to mess it up for everybody else. And the reason why those incidents happen is because they're anonymous. You don't know who that person is. And if something bad were to happen, I don't know, sir, officer, they drove a blue pickup truck. 
Like what's you have no recourse basically. And so, you know, why do why do people when they're doing bad things wear masks? They want to be anonymous. Um, so, you know, the anonymity thing there, I, I boiled it down to like, that's pretty much the thing that ties to most folks, uh, most folks, bad, um, bad experiences with sportsmen in the past. So, you know, that's a pretty, that's a pretty easy thing to solve for with product. And, you know, the, the, how we solve for that is every sportsman who signs up to use the land trust platform has to run identity verification. So we use the same providers that Airbnb does. And you have to upload like a picture of your driver's license or your passport and take a selfie. And it confirms that you are who you say you are. And then you pay with credit cards. So we always make, like to make the joke when you have folks' credit card and identification, they act a lot more honest than someone who is anonymous. Um, so that was something that really put a lot of, I think, and we've had a lot of sportsmen who are like, I'm not doing that. And you're like, Great, you're probably not our customer. Um, if you're, wh- why wouldn't you want to do that? Um, so there has to be some of this vetting in this process to have access to this land, and the, the, our landowners want that, and it makes them feel again. Ninety-five or ninety-six percent of all trips booked through land trust to date have been five-star rated, from landowner to sportsman. So landowners are very happy with the experiences they have with these sportsmen because they're, you know, doing these things that are. You know, showing that showing showing good faith, basically, like they're vetting themselves in a lot of ways. They've got to be happy with the money, of course. You know, and that's that's what we lead with is, you know, these private landowners have these, um, you know, especially producers. So producers who are working the land where they're farming or ranching, you know, it's a hard job, and there are so many things that in that primary business they don't have control of. So they don't control trade wars, they don't control commodity prices, they don't control weather. Um, they have difficulty even controlling access on their own land. A hundred percent. So, you know? so how do we <clears throat> show them that, Hey, this, you have this, these wildlife resources and often they're viewed, especially by producers who aren't hunters themselves. They're viewed as a liability, you know, here in Montana, it's like elk. The hunting public of Montana looks at like a big herd of elk on, a, you know, on a pivot as like, Oh my God, that's <laughs> like the luckiest landowner in the world. And screw them for not letting me go out there and shoot them. <laughs> um, I'm speaking generally, of course. I, yes. You know. Um, <laughs> but that lander is going, well, they broke my fence coming in, and now they're going to eat, you know, $15,000 of my, of my hay or, or whatever, my alfalfa. And it's a liability. So, and then it also generates 50 different door knocking incidents at my door. So I'm trying to do my job. And because that herd of elk is on my pivot and people can see it from the road, it's a nonstop stream of people coming to ask if they can go out and hunt them. Um, so we need to shift that to actually that's an asset, and you know we can offset the costs of of that herd being on your land. And I'm using elk in Montana as as, and as, as an example, but you know this could be you know whitetail and all these other things. There there are this wildlife resource that is a valuable asset to you, and you know, should contribute to the bottom line of your operation. We, we, we're, we're really um, behind this idea that conservation is a crop. And, you know, wildlife resources and uh, those natural resources are a crop that should be invested in and also harvested uh, and, and contribute to the bottom line, just like, you know, their agricultural production. That, that leads me into the exact next question, just like agri- good. a crop. Yeah. Uh, my next question for Andy was... We, in past episodes, we talked about cap rates for investors mm-hmm. on farms, ranches, land. And, um, you know, 2% is about the best you're going to see gross cap rate 
in eastern Montana, that's based on livestock production or, or any uh, hay grains. But your ag value cap rate is 2%, Andy. Uh, at what time does the paradigm shift that we start pulling in this data from Nick, using it in a statistical analysis, using it in a... Uh, uh, a way that we can show that well actually uh, your cattle is probably more like four and a half five percent because crops cattle that's a natural resource wildlife conservation that's a natural resource and you we've always used the traditional old paradigm of this is how the maybe it goes back to highest and best use livestock cattle agriculture does the paradigm shift to where highest and best use is nick's private enterprise for conservation uh recreation and how are you tracking that how are we going to start monetizing that well uh land trust has the potential to you know actually create that market or at least kind of substantiate or document that market because right now the market for hunting is is it's kind of loosey-goosey you know it's frustrating as an appraiser you show up on a property and they and then they hell you might even be back in the office and they say oh yeah we got a hunting lease you know forgot to tell you that and oh it's you know it's couple hundred bucks of this or a couple thousand, you know. Handshake. Yeah, you know, handshake. No paper, nothing like that. Right, no. so there's not a very, and we, we talked about this quite a bit last night. We, mm. we had a we had a whiskey-fueled think tank uh, <laughs> going on at the Northern uh, last night, a brain trust, uh, talking about this kind of stuff. It was it was a lot of fun, but, um, and how, how there's not a well-established market uh, for this kind of thing, and it's not monetized. And, you know, I was really excited to have you on here because I see a lot of similarity with, with Montana Land Source, with my business, you know, bringing a tech platform into an arena where there, there hasn't been one and, and not necessarily naturally a high level of acceptance of that kind of thing, some, some resistance. So I, in that conversation last night, we were really talking a lot about marketing and, and educating uh, the market and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of overlap, and it's interesting trying to, trying to express the value to the, to the market for these kind of things. And, right. But back to your uh, point, culture about yes and i think that i mean it'll obviously help land trust out a lot but establishing a market and for landowners to start thinking about it that way and yeah. actually have some data points to and appraisers like <laughs> culture almost just fell out of his We're live. Yeah. <laughs> not even drinking whiskey yeah. uh so yeah. that's fascinating to me to see what kind of market might actually get established through a platform mm-hmm. like this yeah and i it, I do want to clear up something. You mentioned highest and best use. We're strong believers that agricultural production is an integral part of things. So I don't want it to be um, construed as, hey, you don't need to farm a ranch anymore because you know land trust has created this market where you can generate income from your conservation-related um, uh, resources. We think it's an, a complementary uh, additive income source to agricultural production. So we, we, I'm a... Uh, producers and, and the agricultural lifestyle is like that's integral fabric of the uh, of the country. You know, we were an agrarian society, and I think that um, I want to see that proliferate. I want to see working lands proliferate. Uh, I just want to see them be as profitable as they can be. And profit isn't a dirty word; it's what makes the world go round. If they can't make the land profitable and their operations profitable, they're going to sell it and it's going to develop, and that will be habitat erased forever. Well, can you clear up the name land trust for me? Yes. Because we've had a lot of discussions about conservation easements, which are held by land trusts. Yes. 
And you must have been like 17 when you locked up that name, <laughs> Landtrust.com, because you were ahead of all these these ego uh, land trusts around Jackson Hole, all these idealistic uh, land trusts in Colorado, and the stock growers land trusts in Montana and Wyoming. And now everyone thinks that you're out to right. implement a conservation easement. And uh, you, you talk about protecting agrarian livelihoods and keeping the integrity of, of the West and, and agriculture as the core, the essence of, Absolutely. of land, private land ownership. But it almost, I think if people might hear you say that and feel conflicted with the name. Sure. Yeah. Uh, we actually were talking about this last night. And, and it's fair for, you know, especially producers, because they're the ones most in tune with this, um, for them to hear our company name is Land Trust. It's one word, just FYI. Um, and LandTrust.com was actually fairly cheap. I got it a couple of years ago, um, <laughs> which is bizarre why none of these guys have thought to get that domain name. Um, first and foremost, we are not, we are a for-profit startup that, you know, has nothing to do with conservation easements. So I chose the name Land Trust because the whole business is based around private lands and the wheel only goes around with trust on both sides of our marketplace. So I put those two words together. Um, we are strongly pro-private landowner and pro-private landowner rights. So I want to make that extremely clear. If a landowner wants to do a, a conservation easement because that's the right decision for them, awesome, go for it. If they don't want to do it, cool. I, you know, we are, that is a, up to the private landowner to make the decisions that they want to that they, they think is best for their land and their operations. So you know, that's, the, that's the story behind our brand you know, I joke, I, I was I had a meeting with one of these land trusts, and they're like, well, we think you should change your name, because people might confuse <laughs> it with us. And I said, not not for, not concerned about how <laughs> it might affect my business's growth. And I said, yeah, you're a land trust, we are land trust. So uh, nice. I don't think we're going to change the name, but you guys could change your name if you want. Uh, Maybe you, land trust everywhere will have to rebrand. You could guess what valley that might have been in. See, there's all this, there's all this disruption you're... you're, you're Perched. If you're not ruffling some feathers, you're probably not building a significant Well, business. and ruffling feathers, I'm right in the middle of it right now. All of my all of my advertising on Facebook, I talk about how land values have appreciated significantly in 2020. And it's mostly western Montana, western Wyoming. Right. And uh 2021's looking really hot too. When this is released in June, we'll see uh how correct I am, but my glass ball suggests that 2021 is probably going to be even better than 2020. And with that, um, I've ruffled feathers because people are commenting and you get more hate comments than I do. Oh, Nick. Of course. I, uh, I, I don't, don't have social media, so I don't even see them. <laughs> so comment away, guys. I don't envy Speak the, into the, the, uh, the, abyss. Of, the amount of trolls and hate and shade you are getting uh, from probably, I don't know, public landowners, but probably, or, or sorry, <laughs> I guess they do call themselves public landowners. Yeah. But public lands hunters, maybe there is some hate being sent your way from private landowners. But for me, Andy, and I'm going to need you to defend me on this one with Nick, is people are blaming me that I ruined, I, Coulter DeVries, personally ruined Montana because there's been an influx of Californians. And uh, man, you're powerful. Oh, I know it. I know it. I'm a market maker. Like, yeah, I guess it's that, it's that trimmed beard. That's yeah, it. that's it. <laughs> I personally must be stronger and more powerful than Goldman Sachs because I'm a market maker. And uh, I want to actually I objectively justify highest and best use 
Yeah, my roots, I'm fifth generation Montana homesteader. My daughter is sixth generation. I assume she'll have some part in agriculture. That's a lot of pride. We love our cows. We love animal husbandry. We love the environment. We love everything about rural communities in Montana culture. But my job is I'm a facilitator of the markets, and the markets are driven by the highest yield, and they're driven by highest and best use. So it might not always be agriculture. And I, Andy, what do you think? Do the appraisers, I mean, you guys are going to see it, that uh, conservation, recreation, uh, that might be the reason to own land in the future ahead of agriculture. Well, landowners fuss about high land values until it's time to sell. Right. I mean, you just see that over over and over again. And as far as highest and best use change, swinging away from agriculture, I mean, that ship has basically sailed. We've been in that environment for decades now, more or less. I mean, obviously, different parts of the state and whatnot. But, um, you know, diversification into aesthetics and hunting. And, I mean, that, that's been going on Hospitality, for, a, for, a, recreation, yeah, for, for a long, long time. And, yeah, I think it's really imperative that landowners, you know, they, they need to step back and take a broad look uh, at highest and best use at potential of that land. And it's, you know, it's a shifting landscape. You know, it's funny, you look at old appraisals going back decades and creeks and riverfront and riparian were categorized as waste and waste. given, given zero, zero value. And now, you know, you can be up to six, seven, eight thousand $8,000 an acre on what was waste a, a couple of decades water. ago, yep. you know, so there's these massive shifts and yeah, I mean, I just, you know, there are these tools, there are these disruptive uh, tools and technologies like land trust, and I consider myself in this boat too, Montana Land Source. And it's kind of like what you said about conservation. They're tools, you know, use them, use them or don't. Um, it I can know, be a part of the portfolio. Yeah, I think know. we kind of have the same heart in this in wanting to bring something useful to the marketplace. And it's very gratifying uh, that a lot of people do take advantage of it and see it. But it's also interesting, and I, I was really struck by this last night in the conversation about the difficulty of uh, communicating to people and. Uh, people that maybe, you know, aren't wanting to see change and take advantage of, of it themselves. But it's really gratifying when the when the light bulb goes on. They say, oh, this is something I can use. You know, this isn't this isn't some guy from Silicon Valley swooping in and, you know, taking you. You referenced uh, control and everything that is out of yeah. their control, you know, that there are there are tools or technology. I mean, uh, you know, Airbnb was mentioned as a analogy. I mean, look at what that's done for you know, people with spare space right. in their residential Underutilized world. assets. Yeah, right. And that is farm and ranch. I've been saying that for years, and I think anyone who goes to uh, the talking head gurus, and I, I, I have a lot of a respect and appreciation for the gurus like Dave Pratt, Jim Garrish, um, you have an asset that might have a lot of equity in it, and it's just not producing relatively good enough for you that same asset if you were to liquidate it a farm and ranch land you could put it into the stock market you could put it into GameStop shares <laughs> <laughs> and uh you could be on, on a long term you could be yielding six percent um, but i think landowners need to be objective about what their yield is and treat it as a business yeah it's a great lifestyle and we're all going to continue to share that value but at the end of the day you want to put your daughter through college, and uh, you want to have a nice vehicle to go to town in. For you your want wife. to still have the land. You want to still have the land. I mean, without the land, I don't think I can't ranch because I don't own any land. I aspire to one day be able to do that. Um, so, you know, if, if it doesn't pencil out, the only alternative 
is to sell the land. So I, unless there's another one, I don't know. Well, and I, I encourage anyone who's listening who is a landowner or, or prospective landowner, a buyer in the market, call up Nick's team and get an opinion on what the potential revenues could be for this property you're looking at or that you're holding. I've done this uh, six or seven times with Nick's team on showings I've had once last week in Lewistown, mm. uh, central Montana. Amazing. Gorgeous. That's an amazing property. Oh, my God. Unbelievably beautiful. The foothills of the snowy mountains. And it's, it's a homestead. It's a ranch that some family raised their kids, and they made it work for 60 years. But at 2,400 acres, it just doesn't work anymore for a family. So the, the yield on that ranch was about, livestock yield, was about 20000 a year. And I didn't disclose that to Nick or his team, uh, not that they would care. But I said, hey, we've got this elk habitat. We've got immense black bear. There's probably cougar in here. We've seen some tracks. Mule deer, um, whitetail. Lots of whitetail, lots of pheasant. And I said, can you give me an opinion on what this would yield with the, the bunkhouse? There's a shitty old cowboy camp type <laughs> ranch hand bunkhouse on it hunters don't care hunters don't care and his team uh did some comps of what they have the market in the area and, and said you know bare minimum you're looking at twenty five thousand a year wow so right out of the gate <clears throat> wow your conservation and your recreation yield is outpacing livestock on that place and and yeah i think it is again portfolio um Keep keep doing those things. Again, we we love agricultural production. That's an awesome thing. And there's the intangible. You know, you mentioned like, hey, if you liquidate and you put in the stock, most of the landowners I meet, they're not looking at. They're not looking at it as, hey, this is purely a financial decision. Um, it's lifestyle. It's their heritage. Like you, you're what fifth generation. Right. You know, it's not just like, hey, could we make more money doing other things? Sure, let's do that. It's not that. You know, it's not that cold, calculated decision making. <laughs> So, you know, there are the intangibles, um, and yeah, why would you not engage and find other income streams to help drive bottom line? Well, I, I shared this last night. It was a big surprise to me in my career appraising ranches, farms and ranches, uh, that had hunting and hunting leases. How few of the landowners stated that their number one motivation for that was economic, that actually the number one motivation was control um right. if you have a, if you have a good outfitter locking up your place you could it's easy you, you don't have to answer the phone you don't have to do all this kind of stuff but uh, that's impressive to me about your platform because it builds that in as well i mean mm -hmm. they, they have full control yeah. so um i think that's really something going for your platform the, the economic benefits the ease i mean you just think about what would be a nightmare to to manage on a hands-on basis otherwise you know the phone calls and the door knocks and the right. or orchestrating hunters and right. hunter days and i mean right you know yeah it's it's uh it's one of those things i had a conversation with a pretty prominent uh real estate broker uh recently and he owns land over kind of by three forks and um he said he's a hunter and fisherman too and he's like i feel like i'm damned if i do i'm damned if i don't you know who do i let go I can't let everyone go. Then who, how do I, you know, mm -hmm. how do I choose? And so, you know, that, it, it puts them in this precarious position and it's just so much more cut and dry to put it, put market economics behind it. You know, hey, so who places a premium on my land? 
because often you run into folks who, especially in local communities, and I'm not saying this, you know, again, we're speaking in generalities, but they take that, they take hunting on your land as a, as granted as their birthright. And that's, you know, because their grandfather did right. 60 years ago. Right. Yep. So, um, it, it just, it, it becomes so hard to choose. Okay. Well, can't let everyone on for free. Can't let, you know, who do I choose? So let's just actually, let's just make this much more simple. Let's make it a transaction. And it's, and I control a hundred percent. I can say yes, no. And you know, this transaction that happens between us is much more cut and dried. So Coulter last night, uh, parallels were made between what Nick is doing and uh, video livestock mm-hmm. auction. Oh yeah. Uh, that technology uh, disrupting. Shunned yeah. Yeah. Yep. Shunned at first and, and highly disruptive. And now, uh, well, and on that point, you know, that, I, I did want to talk about that and I don't come from an agricultural background, so I want to say that outright. Uh, so I try to make sure I'm just always listening and learning. It's what makes it so much fun for me is it's intellectually, I'm like learning every single day. Um, so we wanted to meet with Barry and just like get his perspective and, and, uh, we had run into some issues of people having misconceptions about what we're doing. I got called big tech. Which, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Dare to dream. <laughs> I was like, man, I wish I was big tech. <laughs> I will censor your ass right now. <laughs> uh, I'm not big tech. Um, we're very microscopic tech. Uh, but you know, that, that whole analogy of how like the video auctions were perceived in the beginning, like I don't want people knowing where my place is and all this kind of stuff, you know, those concerns, and now they realize, actually, I'm tapping into more of a transparent liquid marketplace, and I'm going to get better price. Well, if you have good, obviously, if the asset is quality, you're going to get better prices than just the people you know. And I think that metaphor uh, or analogy plays through with the hunting aspect. So a lot of our agricultural producers who, again, aren't hunters themselves, which many aren't, um, their exposure to hunters is the locals seeing X animal out there, a big buck or a, you know, a whatever, turkeys yeah. or a herd of elk. And Beer cans like, flying out the back of the truck as they're hauling ass yeah, down the road just to like, hey, bag the buck. Hey, I, I, I want to go out there. So knocking on their door, disrupting their day, not offering anything in return for the opportunity and kind of taking it as granted. Again, we're speaking in generalities. Um, so when, when we talk to, to these uh, landowners who have had that, had that experience, they don't think that there's any real income opportunity or revenue opportunity from hunting because that's their exposure. Because they're only exposed to the local market who, by definition, is not putting a premium. Now, again, speaking in generalities, I pay, you know, there's an awesome ranch down in Four Corners six minutes from my house, and, you know, I pay a premium to go hunt there. So there's absolutely locals who are willing to do it, and I've started the company because... You know, I wanted to go uh, to scratch my own itch. I wanted to be like, I'm happy to pay that landowner to go out there. I just don't really have an easy way to do it. Um, but when you now t- open up to the entire market, you're going to get the best price. So you're going to get the best price for that resource and, you know, let the market economics drive it. And especially for these producers who, again, are starting to see the shift of like, okay, it's not a liability, it's actually an asset. I always make the kind of, analogy of, you know, when Airbnb or VRBO first were coming out and let's take one of these producers and they got a bunkhouse, like you mentioned, no one's going to pay me to stay in my bunkhouse, right? (laughs) Nobody. 
And well, I'm going to have to do a bunch of work. I'm going to have to clean it. I'm going to have to get out the mouse right. turds. Are, and we, are we talking about uh, my contact in southeast Montana who <laughs> gave you every reason why no one wanted to hunt deer on his place and stay in his shitty cowboy camp? Yes. He, he, made, a, he made a healthy chunk of money last year. Uh, in the first week. Yeah. Of he's already posted. Booked, and he's already booked out uh, for the first weekend. But go year. on with that story because it's hilarious. But he, there's he, the same thing of, you know, they have this asset that's unrealized. It's unrecognized by them. And then, oh, you start making money from it. So now that farmer, that rancher, like, holy crap, I made five grand last year from letting someone sleep in my bunkhouse. Well, what's the natural thing, rational thing to do? Well, I'm going to invest in that. So, hey, maybe we'll put, like, faster Wi-Fi in there or Wi-Fi at all. Or we put a jacuzzi in the backyard because they know they're going to make money. Or habitat well, uh, so protection this is, and development. So and that's, the, the, that's in that kind of home sharing. Now, in land trust marketplace, you show this. Uh, and Andy, you're right. You show them, okay, I would have paid people to shoot turkeys on my land beforehand. Now I, I made like whatever, two, five, ten thousand dollars last year from people coming out and just doing it yourself hunting. Well, how do we invest in that asset? How do we make better turkey or deer or elk habitat or bird habitat? Okay, well, maybe I'll do like a little cover crop. Maybe I'll do because, you know, uh, some of these things have been talked about, like cover crops. Uh, not to go on a tangent, is one of those things that from, again, a, a guy outside looking in and listening into these conversations, people generally think like, yeah, cover crops are probably good for soil health, probably good for water retention, probably good for in a lot of ways, but from an ROI perspective, it's fuzzy. And if it doesn't make dollars, it doesn't make sense. And you're going to, like, it, it takes a capital investment to, to switch over to doing cover crop. And if you can now, in, in land trust model, we know for a fact that wildlife love cover crop. You know, you're going to have more deer, more birds, more whatever, because you've got that cover crop running and you can design cover crops specifically for wildlife. And now you can say, hey, look, we know that that's that's the case for wildlife and you're making money off that wildlife. So now you have the ability to tie doing these practices to profitable income. You know, what's really fascinating about that. I mean, for forever, for a long time, especially, I think, in the run up of the market in the 2000s, you know, we saw people going crazy with habitat uh, work and uh, ponds and waterworks and all this kind of stuff and just throwing money like crazy. It was like, I, you know, it was kind of a fad, kind of a rage. Stream bed restoration. Yeah, yeah. And then you asked about this earlier culture, you know, the economics of that. And as an appraiser, you know, I can't tell you how many times I came along and said, you know, spending $2 million on, you know, creek restoration, you know, I'm sorry, you're not going to get that back out of, the, out of the market. So it's interesting. People have been doing this for a long, long time. I would argue in a lot of cases overdoing it. Uh, but again, back to establishing a market, establishing a metric, establishing it. And I, you know, of course, what you're talking about, I think what we're talking about here is more basic habitat improvement, yeah. not, not crazy over the top, you know, right. um, waterworks and that kind of stuff. But, and we've brought up perk on this, uh, podcast before, and that's their whole thing is some of these assets, if that they're highly, highly valued in the West, but yet if they don't have a mechanism for monetization actually get diminished. That's uh, yeah. And we love uh, perk. Those guys over there have been really supportive and free market environmentalism is a really, well, I mean, it's what we do. We're using the market and the profit incentive, just like I was saying in that, oh, wow, okay, we're making money. Here's a new income stream. Let's invest in it. And investing in that income stream is habitat work. Yeah. You yeah. know, I got to share uh, the, the place I grew up doing the most hunting, a uh, place north of Lewistown at Hilger, 
fabulous ranch guy. You know, he was basically a, a part-time guide. I mean, he just, he loved hunting so much and loved bringing hunters on and especially kids. I mean, this could make me tear up, but like my daughter shot her first uh, buck on the place and, you know, it was just a, like a four point buck, nothing that special. But I found out after the fact he had been keeping guys off of that buck cause it was a kid's, you know, it's yeah. for a, for a, for a lifelong hunter, that's not much of a, of a bag, right. but for a kid, and so he actually managed, it blew my mind. I had no idea he did that. And he, you know, and he had, I guess hunters had knocked on his doors. He had some relationships from guys that came out from South Carolina every year and all this kind of stuff. And I remember driving around in the pickup truck and him talking about, because he, he ended up retiring and leasing out his place, you know, for the cattle grazing and stuff. And he wanted to do some restaurant, you know, he, he was kind of interested in building up the hunting habitat, but he didn't have the economic you know, it was kind of this, it was kind of this part-time hobby thing part. He talked about, um, making it an economic thing, but it kind of was overwhelming to him. Right. And he never did it. Yeah. And I had a good conversation with a a rancher in Nebraska and he was, you know, we're talking about the concept as our first call together. Great guy. Um, and he's like, well, you know, there are folks who got hunting operations around here and, you know, just it costs a lot of money to set, you know, and it was that instant because he's thinking I have to have a hunting lodge and outfit. That's a business. And again, you go back to this metaphor of the Airbnbs. Um, before those platforms existed, you had to do a bed and breakfast business. <clears throat> so the marketing, all the investment and in setting up all, all the stuff. And then now you could just like go on, see an ad, set up your spare room on Airbnb, and you're technically that same business. And that Airbnb is a business partner for you in that enterprise. And just like that, Land Trust is now a business partner for your conservation or your uh, recreational income stream. So you don't, you know, you could just in the same way, you could go to Land Trust if you're a landowner. It's totally free to use. I'm not selling anything, I'm a business partner that offers you access to a market. And, you know, you can set that up for yourself and, you know, start accessing the market immediately. And we've removed all the costs in the back end and all that kind of stuff. And just facil- we're facilitating, a, you know, a liquid, transparent market. Well, and that's, that's part of the issue with what you're, uh, the problem you're solving and uh, solution you're proposing for landowners is that uh, they're workers. They, they like to fix fence. They like to vaccinate calves. It's what they know. It's what they do. And while they would love to have an additional $25,000 a year, they don't know how to market it. They don't want to screw around. They might have tried it on Craigslist 10 years ago. (laughs) Yeah, or like in a local newspaper ad or something. Yeah. Local demand. And uh, just answering the call is the bane of their existence. Right. So you're the partner. You say, look, it's easy for us. We're really efficient. We, We put it out to the broadest market possible. You don't have to be the sales and marketing and customer service. Go fix fence. Do what you do best. Yeah. When you get an email that says, hey, uh, Coulter wants to come out for a few days at the beginning of the season and you know, pay you 4500 bucks, come out with a couple of his buddies and stay in your bunkhouse, you, you, can, you, know, you can accept that. Or you can decline it if you want, you know, for whatever reasons. Again, you're, the, you're in 100% control. And I, that was one of the topics that came up last night. What's more important? Is it control or is it income? And I think the hierarchy is control first and then income. Um, and look, we're cognizant of this word conservation, especially to producers, is a loaded term. 
and it's historically been relegated to nonprofit, non-government entities and the government. And when they hear that, they hear strings, they hear hoops, they hear sticks. And, you know, very Bait few, and very few carrots. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and look, I don't, I don't blame them because they've seen these things go wrong. I mean, shocker, government programs going wrong and being, uh, you know, punitive to private landowners. So, you know, we believe there's a really big opportunity for the private market to attack conservation and use the profit incentive to drive rational you know, rational conservation on private lands. And there are a bunch of folks working on public land stuff. Great. Go for it. Um, that's awesome. We'll support that stuff. 75% of the lower 48 is private. So if you really want to affect conservation and habitat and all that kind of stuff, do you focus on 75% or the 25%? Um, and, and, and the matter of fact is these producers, like you, your family, four, five, six generations, the only reason that these sportsmen want to come knock on your door is because you have good habitat and wildlife assets. You guys have been stewarding the land for generations, and it's unfortunate that the word conservation often only applies to public lands. You know, the incoming administration says they want to, or the, the new administration wants to double the, uh, the amount of acreage of lands in conservation. It's like, well, if you actually looked at private working rural, rural lands, you could quadruple it overnight. But you won't because it's only wilderness public lands that count for conservation yeah mm. it's only who's managing it <clears throat> managing it not correct and not not the actual implementation or effects that are being um, seen from from private landowners farmers and ranchers so on that i want to get into um, as we're kind of approaching the top of the episode um Stream access, I mean, your platform is not just for hunting. We're talking no. fishing, we're talking stargazing, birding, taking uh, photography of birds out on the northern Great Plains. Um, and Andy, you can, you can talk about this. Stream access laws uh, vary from state to state. I believe if Montana had Wyoming's exclusive stream access laws, we would see a 20% bump in land values. That Montana is very much slighted in favor of the public accessing what are deemed uh, the public's resources, wildlife, uh, streams, navigable rivers. And you you provide a solution for that. What, a, what challenges are you faced with with different states' regulations? And uh, I guess exclusivity and privacy... You know, that's a big part of our business, Andy, is is that's what people buy ranches for in the West. Yeah. Um, look, I think the stream access stuff is, I, I don't necessarily have a, a strong opinion on that. Um, look, I, I'm a fisherman. I'm a hunter. I started this business because I'm a passionate sportsman. And I think that the reason why I started this business is to open up more access to more people. Now, access is a spectrum and often, especially in the area that we live in, access only means anyone all the time. You know, basically federal public lands. Um, I believe, of course, that's on one end of the spectrum. And then the other end of the spectrum is what we do, which is facilitating access on private lands through a transaction. Uh, I use the platform a ton. And I go hunting on places where I would have never gotten access to that place. I'm not their friend or family. I don't know them at all. But because it's, we're using this market-based model, 
I now have more access to go hunting and fishing and recreating on private lands than I would have ever had. And so every one of our users of our platform has that access. So, you know, the, the spectrum of access needs to be talked about. And, hey, if you're a hardcore public lands dude, you should be stoked that we're growing because that means more and more hunters are going to be hunting on private land. It's a release mm-hmm. valve. I mean, this year we saw, mm. it's hard to say the numbers, but I was uh, doing another po- podcast with um, a guy who runs a, a company called Go Wild. It's a social network, but it's for hunters and fishermen. So um, we can Do you know actually, what, what episode or what that's called? Um, yeah, his, his podcast is called Restless Native. I don't know what episode number it was. Um, okay. But uh, Brad's a great guy, smart guy, and we were talking about this too. But it's it's been... Maybe a million plus hunters were added this year, new hunters. And I mean, people could see it on public land. Like there were a lot of people hunting and, you know, those public land resources, especially up here, because so many people hunt per capita, man, it's, it gets rough out there. It gets beat up. And, uh, you know, if we can, if we can have a release valve where some portion of these hunters have the ability to go out and hunt on private lands, that should be viewed as a win. Well, not to mention that actually there's big problems right now getting access to some of these animals. You know, there are elk herds in the area you guys mentioned being mm. on a ranch where they can't get hunters on right. those animals because of locked up private lands and, and public lands that are locked and the hunters can't get in. So getting access and distribution is, is going to be impacted. Yeah, and some of these constituencies, you know, especially up here, their their first thought is, will just give us access and 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 use the use the state to like command access mm. um which is a really poor way to approach the table um that's not the, that's not the way that should be done uh, again we're hardcore uh, pro private landowner rights and uh you know coming into it with um a market based approach it seems to work really well coming at it with well, we want to we want to do it. It's very myopic, very selfishly consumer driven. If I can't go hunt that land, then screw them. And that's just a it's a poor it's a poor perspective. So, Nick, it's funny to watch brokers market land in Montana. There's all kinds of uh, you know great conservation easement potential or you know elk hunting property for a 20 acre tract that kind of thing. <laughs> Are you lumping me into that? No, <laughs> no, no, I'm not looking. So what I'm what I'm wondering is how soon we're going to start to see marketing uh, where it's this property is enrolled in land trust or this property has a $20,000 a year uh, hunting lease. Well, I think it's absolutely, you know, culture brought this up earlier. The impact will be really interesting because this you know, we're not inventing a market. We're bringing transparency and liquidity to it. Um, you know, the current hunting lease market annually in the U.S. is like a $1.6 billion a year. But it's all done on paper. It's, you know, handshake, paper, cashier's check stuff. So I believe that market, it, there's a lot of opacity to it. So it's hard for someone in Missouri to understand, you know, our friend over in Eastern Montana, like that he's willing and, and able to offer access, obviously for a fee to hunt whitetails on his property. We're facilitating that. So we believe the market's significantly larger. And as Coulter mentioned, we're not just going to be building this for hunting. Like we're building a much larger business, which is a private lands conservation business for profit. Um, so in the future, as we scale, Absolutely. Like land trust, when landowners, landowners who are our customers and use land trust, who are our business partners, they're going to, you know, log into their account and see like, here's my annual conservation income stream. 
And that will absolutely be something that I would believe plays into your guys' business of, okay, here's our cattle operation, here's our farm operation, here's, you know, land value, and here's, you know, the other income stream that we can demonstrate the last five years of, of data um, of all the different types of income that we've brought through this conservation-related, um, you know, income stream. Well, and, and uh, with the new administration, uh, you're going to have an opportunity to monetize and track several different enterprises. You can have a wind energy enterprise, solar energy, um, private hunting, fishing access, conservation enterprise. Your carbon gonna, credits might carbon, be well, carbon online. sequestration. If carbon sequestration, you know, I don't pretend to be any sort of uh, expert on it. It's not, it's not a real thing yet for, for most people. I mean, I've, I've heard estimates of like it costs 200 grand to get something set up. But that will get, if that market develops, you know, land trust will eventually connect you to all these conservation-related income streams, and they should stack on each other. So we start with hunting and fishing because they're actually very large average order values, so there's a lot of dollars there immediately that the landowner has 100% control over. Um, on average, our landowners in the first year of our operation made $2,500. We had quite a few that made twenty dollars to $30,000. So that's, I mean, almost pure profit income. And we're a little company. So... You start with that, but then, as I mentioned, you know, landowners start making money from this, and they see this income stream and this asset. They start investing in it. Okay, let's do maybe we do cover crops because, man, we could really, you know, get a really good deer population or, you know, waterfowl or birds or whatever. Okay, uh, you're doing cover crops. There's probably some people out there who, you know, you might qualify for programs that pay you because you've switched over and done, done cover crops, and you start stacking and carbon sequestration cover crops and stuff like that. So, these things should start Mi- stacking mi- on each other. Mitigation banks potentially, right? Um, all kinds of. So, you Options. know, eventually, we're not there yet. So if you go to Land Trust as a landowner today, like, you won't see any of this stuff there today, but that's where we're going. And we'll just be the connective, the connector to all these income streams that are available there. Well, and Andy, if you start tracking uh, recreation uh, incomes, I see ranches selling as EBITDA multiples in the future. Right now, it's, it's selling as a comp basis, and it's completely subjective in the eye of the beholder, a what a what a seller will take, what a buyer will pay, and uh, I think we'll get to more of a commercial value where it's a multiple of EBITDA. Uh, if if people start showing that I make eighty thousand dollars a year on the livestock, twenty five thousand dollars a year on the hunting, thirteen thousand dollars a year on the wind, uh, ten thousand on the solar, I I think it's coming, and I think tomorrow's landowner sees this as a business and you got to track that you got to start pulling in yeah. data to, well getting to getting a land source getting geeky about this um it'll be interesting to see as this market develops i mean because it's absolutely true you know right now i mean you know this this market or the these values have been in place for a long long time i mean aesthetics and hunting right. and recreation have been dominating of course the market for a long long time but it's very subjective um and uh, back to cap rates you know actually i kind of suspect that there will still be relatively low cap rates because I think the, if I can say this right, I think the value in purchasing a property is going to be higher than just the income, even even from a great hunting lease because uh, it's more than income. It's the the, the whole package, the aesthetics and the, and so we're still in that kind of environment. I still suspect there's going to be low cap rates because the, the, the purchase value or, or the desire to own is actually going to be 
It's not, not just a financial yeah, asset. Exactly. But but you know, and I mean low cap rates uh are frustrating to people, but uh they're metrics one way or the other. So even if even if they're still low cap rates but a high valued asset, you know, land is still a high valued asset and you know, really that it, what it comes down to is the highest and best use is investment. And these things, these are just income streams, agriculture, recreation, you know, they're just, they're income streams and they're part of the value matrix, but they're only part of the value matrix. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, but it'll be, it'll be fab. I mean, as a, as an appraiser and a values geek and a market geek, having some more data to play with and having some metrics will, will be fabulous. And I think, I think it's good for the market. It's just the same disruption that Montana Land Source is doing, bringing Mm -hmm. more data and information to an opaque market. It actually Markets need some transparency to function efficiently. So it really does benefit uh, quite a lot of players, uh, participants in the market when the market is better functioning. Well, and going back to that, you know, cattle auction analogy, the price you got for your cattle before online auctions and accessing a larger demand market was whatever the locals who knew you would give you. And, you know, we see that a ton in this space that we're working in where we're talking this recreation conservation um, income streams where i have a friend who's you know uh whose family has a large ranch and we know an outfitter that pays them a very small amount of money for that because it's happened for a long time and the place is unreal and has unbelievable resources and they could if they were to move into this and actually tap the market directly themselves um five, six, seven times what they're getting on an annual lease from the, the current outfitter. And I want to be very clear here. We are not, we don't want to compete with outfitters. We are not anti-outfitter. My perspective is outfitters are service providers. The true asset is the land, right? That's, that's, that's really where the, the value is. And there will always be um, clientele who want an outfitter experience, which is great. And we're, we're very pro that. I made the, uh, analogy last night that, you know, we stayed at the Northern because we wanted a certain service level and, you know, we could have Airbnb, we could have stayed at a motel or whatever, but for the things that I wanted to do, I wanted to, you know, entertain some clients and have some conversations and then take, you know, my wife out to dinner afterwards. Yeah. You weren't, Andy Ron wasn't going to (laughs) saunder into the, to the super eight. So, so so it's not just like, Oh, well they're a place to sleep and there's another place to sleep. So they must be competing. They're not really competing. And I think it's the same thing here. Um, in the future, we could actually really change the outfitting business, I think, positively. Uh, for those who don't know roughly how it works, is an outfitter is essentially speculating on a market. And they're saying, in the beginning of the year, I'm going to go lease up a bunch of this land with the assumption that I can sell hunts to not only cover my initial cash outlay, but profit. Um, so in a future of land trusts, as we continue to scale, those outfitters, all they have to do, instead of going out and speculating on the market, like this year, 2020, I mean, was a perfect example. In the beginning of the year, you go lay out 50 grand of leases. And then you go to try and sell hunts. And then, holy crap, coronavirus hits and all your hunts drop out. That's not a good position to be in. You've got 50 grand out. Um, in a future, we'll actually, you won't have to speculate. All you have to do is be really good at your job as an outfitter and have those landowner relationships. And then that landowner can say, hey, you know, I I directly list on Land Trust, but if you want to, if you want to have that outfitted experience, you know Ron's Outfitters is who outfits my land, and you pay for that extra service level because, like I said, they're a service provider. There's always going to be a market who wants that service. They want, 
you know, the full experience and it's more concierge that way. Um, so I do like, I want to make that clear. Like we're not, we're definitely not anti-outfitter. We're not competing with outfitters. I think we will have a, a, an ability to really change and improve that business as we grow. So you're saying that it might take the risk out. So we'll take for, all the risk out for outfitters. Yeah. So wh- don't go out late cash, be really good at what you do and have that relationship with those landowners. And then you don't have to, there's no cash outlay. And if coronavirus hits, it sucks. Hunts will get canceled, but you at least you don't have like 50 grand out in leases that you paid in the beginning of the year that you're now out. You, now you're just out your time. Well, it's unfortunate that what you're doing is, is competition for a lot of different industries. And the biggest, comp, biggest industry is the government and public lands, which are a monopoly, and they hate competition. And when you have monopolies uh, in the government, you get you get the least common denominator. You get, you get the most applicable product with the least utility and value. And you're going to, you're going to present a lot of threat to people that are going to see you as uh, taking away rather than adding to what they're doing. Well, let me, let me ask you this though, from Mm -hmm. back to the outfitter. Um, So right now, you know, an outfitter is locked into physical land, physical space that lease out. Couldn't this new model, couldn't an outfitter, be open to outfit anywhere. Absolutely. And actually not have to tie down to a piece of land. So they have their service as, like you said, the concierge level, higher level service, and they could be ready to go for any client. Add it on to a booking. On any piece of land. Exactly. So if you're here in Montana and you're just a badass elk outfitter, you just, you got it dialed in, you could be attached to, you could be added on to a booking at, at, at many different properties. And it's not, again, you didn't have to outlay the cash to try and lock that up. I would wager that there's a high level of subpar outfitters that are only successful successful to the extent that they've locked up prime land. Yeah. So they're, the, so they're the gatekeeper Absolutely. to access that awesome elk hunting space. They've locked it up and they're actually not that I've experienced this. Well, yeah. And and look, just like any service market, there's always going to be a bunch of bad service providers. It doesn't mean the market isn't good or the idea of that service isn't good. Just means there's individual operators who are, you know, not, not good at what they do. And we've even heard to the extreme where they're just like shysters. I mean, the, the amount of people sportsmen I've talked to in running this business who have found an ad on Craigslist, sent a cashier's check for 50% down, and never heard from that person again. Yeah. And and that's what happens in an <laughs> opaque... We're in the wrong business, Coulter. <laughs> an opaque marketplace. I saw Coulter's eyes. Well, and we, and the, and, and cashier's check? This is, but the, no, I'm, that's, that's how this business has been done. And so, you know, and it's because there's no transparent marketplace or facilitator. So, you know, the way we work is the same way all these marketplaces work. Hey, I want to do this thing. I want, you know, September 10th to the 20th, and it's $5,000. And we capture that, you know, the $5,000, and we hold it kind of like an escrow. In trust. Exactly. We hold it in escrow <laughs> until the hunt actually transpires. And that really mitigates, I mean, to almost completely any chance for fraud. So it, it, it sol- marketplaces solve these things really elegantly. It's not just because like, all marketplaces that are online do this type of thing, and that's why, they, that's why they're worth so much money and why they grow so fast, because there's trust built into these marketplaces that don't exist when you're trolling around in Craigslist or forums. Or you, there's, no, there's no trust. There's no identity. There's no, um, there's no security in that. Well, to wrap it up, 
Uh, Nick, any recommendations to our listeners? I mean, LandTrust.com is a great place to get started. You've got some awesome new videos out there uh, on YouTube, I suspect. Yes, on YouTube. Yeah, we've got some new landowner um, testimonials from some folks, some great, uh, um, some great ranchers in and around Bozeman area because it's easier to shoot them since we're based there. And uh, you've got some great stuff on Instagram for all of our listeners who haven't left Facebook yet. Uh, due to being de- deplatformed or censored, <laughs> uh, I'm assuming you're on Facebook, Nick. Uh, the company is. I haven't had social media personally since 2016. So <laughs> I, I came from that industry, and I saw how the sausage was made, and I was like, "Man, eh, I don't want. <laughs> I don't want anything to do with this." You, you were the sausage. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let me and let me plug. Uh, let me plug uh, plug Brad's platform uh, for any of my hunting and fishing brethren uh, out there. Check out Go Wild. Um, I think their URL is time to go wild, potentially. Now, this is the podcast you were on? Uh, it, it, the, it, the CEO of that company has okay. his podcast. Um, but that's a, it's a social network. They do commerce, too, but specifically for hunters and fishermen. So if you're feeling like, I don't want to give Facebook and Instagram my money, and by the way, giving your eyeballs and scrolling is giving, you, giving them their money, um, go support and be part of a community where you can post pictures of a harvest and not be uh, you know, blocked um, so, so go check that out and, and, and have no fear of that. And we, that's why we, we love them because we advertise with those guys because we can get our ad campaigns approved, you know, like we can't get a, you know, an ad campaign approved in Facebook. Cause you have a gun. No, we don't even have guns. We have no guns or animals in these ads and they don't get approved. They get rejected. I'm always, I'm always just baffled by instagram that blurs the pictures of uh hunting pictures of a, yeah. of a kill of a harvest and it says this may be disturbing to some viewers and i'm like uh that's our primal how we live like vegans <laughs> maybe I, I, I believe eating deer a bloody deer on the ground is what humans have been doing for Since the beginning of time 120,000 yeah. years um so yeah if you're tired of that bullshit then go check out <laughs> go check out go wild and uh and be part of a community that actually supports and celebrates these things and not uh, make you feel like you're part of the fringe. Yeah, yeah. I, and definitely, uh, let's let's support more of our alternative uh, yeah. media, independent, like uh, Nick and I were on Signal app. It doesn't mean we're revolutionaries. <laughs> <laughs> just means I don't want people like uh, dro- eavesdropping into my conversations. Right. Yeah. 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 So we're on Signal, support them, and, and I don't know what the deal is with Parler, but if they ever get back up. But yeah, let's... Let's get away from being owned by uh, by our media providers. I think you just made yourself a domestic terrorist. Ah, you're right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but no, I appreciate you guys having me on. Uh, the conversations are awesome. Uh, I think because of the the businesses that you guys work in, I don't have a ton of knowledge of that. And you know, getting together with stuff like last night, and you have constituents um, from these different areas that touch yep. agricultural production and, and, and private lands is always really interesting to have the conversation. Jess Peterson, a prior guest, was there. Wild man. Yeah, oh, so yeah. it was, it was we a were, big night at the Northern. We were making fun of Jess because when he did the podcast, he was great. It was an awesome podcast, but he didn't even introduce himself to like minute 40. <laughs> was like, yeah. He just like hit the ground running. We couldn't get a word in edgewise. <laughs> yes, he, he's very skilled with the microphone. <laughs> well, thank you all. Any final thoughts, Andy? No, this is great. Thanks, Nick, and uh, wish the best of luck to you. And uh, you know, want to stay in touch. Like I said, similar similar platforms, similar disruptive mm. tech based platforms. You know, it's it's great stuff. Yeah, and and 
I mean, just call them up. If you're like me, I, I hate emails. Uh, just call up the guys at Land Trust and say, here's what I'm looking at. What are your thoughts? Yeah, we're pretty friendly. Um, Colton, you'll probably get Colton on the phone. He runs our customer success. He was our first employee. And our landowners love him, uh, Mike. And, you know, there will be a, a human being on the other side of the phone who will ha- be happy to spend some time with you and answer questions and be helpful in any way we can. All right. Season two, episode two. Uh, things are improving. Thanks, Nick DiCastro of Land Trust. Thanks, Nick. Oh, that was awesome. Yeah, it was good.